We'll open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Title of the message today is The Schemes of the Enemy. The Schemes of the Enemy. You know, the dictionary defines schemes this way. It's defined as making plans, especially in a devious way, with the intent to do something illegal or wrong. And, you know, we see a lot of schemes today, don't we? Lots of schemes, lots of people being devious with the intention to do wrong. We see identity theft schemes, we see insurance fraud schemes, we see corporate theft schemes, we see Enron, we see Bertie Madoff, we see all of these schemes going left and right. And just last week, uh, I read about a man in Albany, New York, who had a scheme to defraud really primarily elderly people, uh, and it was a lottery scheme, where he was calling them up and he's saying, hey, you won the lottery. Now, before we can send you your winnings, you have to wire us the taxes for those winnings. And he just ripped off a bunch of people. One of the people he ripped off almost $25,000 they wired in. And sadly, even though he was arrested and convicted, thank you, Jesus, they're never going to see a dime of that money, you know? And so these schemes that people have left and right. It's the theme of our message today, and as we continue, what we're going to discover is that Saul has schemes of his own, and Saul is scheming to kill uh, David. And as we're going to see today, it's important for us to pay attention to Saul's schemes because they are very instructive to us, in that as Saul schemes to kill David, we watch David and how he responds to those schemes, and therein is the instruction for us, because the the enemy is crafty. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, the Bible says, looking for whom he's going to devour. And so we have to understand that the enemy is scheming against you and me. And so very instructive for us as we go through this, watching how David responds to the schemes of Saul in his life. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 uh, in chapter 18 where we read, Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain, made him his captain, over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. Now, this is actually a demotion for David. You will recall that the Lord had, or rather uh, Saul, when he saw that David had been so successful in battle and killing Goliath, well, Saul was pleased his punch when he saw that, and he put David in charge of all of his armies. If you look up at verse 5 of the same chapter, it says that David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war. So when this first happened, Saul put him in charge of everything. Now he's demoting him. Why? Well, because after David had the victory, you'll recall that as they're coming back into town, all the chicks are singing his praise. All the women are coming out into the street and they're singing, you know, praises, saying Saul has, has killed his thousands, David is ten thousands. And Saul's like, oh no, I'm not having that. I am not having David get top billing here. And so then Saul began, began to eye David and begin to treat David, you know, with a very wary eye. And so now, you know, he's threatened by him and he demotes him. 
Um, and yet David here, he remains faithful. He, he went out and he came in before the people, an example to the people. Verse 14, and David behaved wisely in all his ways, thank you, Lord, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, verse 15, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. And you, you, you might think, you know, here, gosh, that in and of itself, a scheme on Saul's part. That, you know, he demotes the guy, right? And how does David handle it? Well, he handles it wisely. And uh, now Saul's like, man, this guy is tough, you know? And so, you know, Saul's very afraid of him. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. In other words, it's a biblical way of saying the guy was faithful. You could set your watch by David and everybody loved him. They're just like, what a, what a godly man. And, so, and, and he's successful in what he does because he's operating in the strength of the Lord and in the center of the Lord's will. Then, verse 17, Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And herein we have the very first scheme that we're going to take note of today. Saul's scheme uh, to take out David, to kill David. Put on the screen for you if you're taking notes. Saul schemed to draw David into a deadly battle. He schemed to draw David into a deadly battle. Saul, from his perspective, from his vantage point, you know, here he is, he's telling, he's telling David, you know, carrot and the stick kind of deal. Hey, here's my daughter. Isn't she hot? You want her? All right, we'll go and fight in the battle, you know, kind of thing. And, and so he's putting this out here. Now, from Saul's perspective, we know what's going on in his mind. The Holy Spirit tells us that his motive is, hey, I'll go put him out in the battle and, and he'll get killed, you know? He's thinking, let's let the enemy do my dirty work. And either way, if he's killed or, or if he's unsuccessful in battle, either one accomplishes Saul's purposes. Because he's threatened by David. So if he's killed, great, there's, there's my threat and I can stand along with the rest of Israel, go, oh, boo-hoo, David died, when really, secretly in my heart, I'm like, woo-hoo, there, he's taken out. You know, or if he's unsuccessful in battle... Well, then that also accomplishes Saul's purposes because it's like, well, you know, everybody loves a winner. Nobody likes a loser kind of deal. And so if he's a loser, then the luster on his star is going to be, you know, diminished a little bit and that'll work just as well. So this is exactly where Saul is coming from. He schemed to draw David into a deadly battle. Now, here's the problem with this. The problem with this is that, well, Saul's saying, you know what? You can marry my daughter, but you're going to have to work for it, Right? And the problem is that work's already been done, hasn't it? It certainly has. If you'll remember when we were in 1 Samuel 17 in verse 25, Saul had already promised his daughter for whoever fought and overcame Goliath, right? And, and David would be like, now what else do you want me to do? I just, I did it. It's done. Saul said, look, anybody, his whole, his whole army, everybody's afraid. He's like, well, is there, if, whoever does it, I'll tell you what, I'll make you rich, I'll give you my daughter, and your whole family, included, you know, you, you and your whole family, don't have to pay taxes. I mean, this, he was motivated. And David went out, he's like, boom, done. Where's my chick? You know, I'm done, I'm good, you know, let's, let, let's have it. Well, and so what's happening here, 
Well, he's, he's, say, he's requiring him to, to work for something that's already been accomplished. You're like, okay, so what's that got to do with me? Where's the application in that for my life? Here it is. Satan does the exact same thing with us in regards to our salvation. Satan sows this, this lie into the hearts of men and women that, hey, listen, you know what? You need to do something to earn your salvation. Now, this is contrary to Scripture. There's, a, there's an ocean of Scriptures I could share. I just point you to Colossians chapter 2. Throw it on the screen. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul says this. He says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Let's just stop right there. I love that scripture. Uh, I, it always gives me, you know, this, this, this picture, no pun intended for what I'm about to say. But, you know, when you, when you take a picture, a group photo, who do you look for first? You, right? You want to see how, and you, you, you know, everybody looks great. And you got some weird look on your face. You got something in your teeth. You're like, I hate this picture. This, is a big, this picture's no good. Why? Well, because you don't look good. Well, Paul gives us a group photo here. He's like, let's, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You're like, I don't like that picture. Yeah, it's an ugly picture. But he says, he has made alive together with him, with the Lord. Having forgiven you, forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, it's an interesting phrase. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements. What's, what's that referring to? Uh, you, know, you might think of it like you know, a rap sheet. Or, or you know, what else you might think of it is like a bill that comes due. right? My, my, uh, my kids, when they were growing up, I told them, all of them, I said, look, if you're, if you're going to be a good student, and you're going to concentrate on, you know, on that, you know, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you, you know, I'll help you with your car payment, I'll help you with your insurance, um, and, uh, and one of the things I did with all my kids, I gave them a gas card, and, uh, and, you know, they don't abuse it, be faithful to it, and as long as you get good grades, we're, we're cool here, kind of thing. Well, my daughter Megan, she went off to Biola, you know, gas card in hand, and uh, all of a sudden, I get the Chevron bill that comes in the mail, and I'm like, Holy smokes, man. Where's all the money being spent at Chevron? While I look closely at the bill, she's buying food with her Chevron card. She's going into the food mart. She's living it up, man. She's just, and that, you know, I'm like, what are you buying? You're, all your friends, you're getting all your monthly groceries, the whole, she's just living it up. I'm like, hey, you know, everybody out of the pool, man, <laughs> come out. I want my car, gas card back or you need to stop buying food with a gas card. But here's the deal. When that bill came due, I was on the hook for it. I couldn't call Chevron and go, hey, you know what? That, you know, that's not, uh, I, told, I told her just to buy gas. They'd be like, tough, the bill's due. You got to pay it, right? And that's the way it is with our sin. The, 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 the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So, so the bill comes due and we're like, holy smokes. But what, what the gospel teaches is, look, listen, Jesus, he's paid the bill. He's paid the penalty for our sin. Your salvation is purchased. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's purchased for you by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we obtain salvation by grace through faith. But Satan, he works the angle to be able to get people to go, oh, no, you know what? It's not that you're saved you know, by, by grace through faith. Look, you've got to work for this. This is something you've got to do to earn your, your salvation. And, and, and inevitably, I'll have conversations with people 
where the, when we talk about the subject of salvation, I find a lot of people who call themselves Christians really are not trusting Jesus Christ for their salvation. Many people who call themselves Christians are actually trusting in their good works to save them. And the litmus test is this question of how do you know that you're saved? I mean, we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Look, how do you know you're saved? And in the course of talking to people about how is it that you know you're saved, what I hear people say often is some variation of, well, I hope when I die my good works outweigh my bad works. Listen, if that's you here today, and it could well be, you need to understand that, that in that faith and belief system, you're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in you. And you have to understand this is a very dangerous thing to do. Paul talking to the Galatians, he planted a church in Galatia and, and he set them up and there and he goes out, he's got leaders in place. All of a sudden word comes back to Paul, they've gone off the rails. And, and some guys have come in and they're basically saying, yeah, Jesus is good and the, the gospel and all that, but look, if you're not, if you're not circumcised, then, then you, know, you, you can't be saved. And, and so <laughs> Paul writes to the Galatians, he's like, man, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and, and, and to keep you from obeying the truth? What's obedience to the truth? Trusting in God, trusting in Jesus Christ, his completed work for my salvation. That's the obedience, salvation by grace through faith. He says this to the Galatians. He says, for if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. Now that's a play on words on, on Paul's part, but it's something that we need to, to pay close attention to because it's got some huge implications. He's saying, you know, if you're thinking you're made right with God by a piece of, piece of your flesh being cut off, then you're being cut off from Christ. That's the play on words. The implications are is that there, there are people in the church who really aren't trusting in Christ, trusting in their own works, and maybe that's you today. And Paul's word to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is you can be in that belief system and completely cut off from God to where you're deceived profoundly. You think that when you die, you're going to heaven, but really you've been trusting in your own works and, and you're not trusting in Christ and that's the, that's, the, that's the entry ticket to heaven, my friend. How do you know you're saved? The answer is this, because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin in my place. That and that alone. Now, there is a responsibility on our part. We do have a responsibility to obey God and to, and to put his, you know, his commandments into practice in, in our life. The Bible says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but that's not working for our salvation. It's a, it's a matter of response to God. It's a matter of saying, look, you, are, you become a member of the household of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And once you become a member, once you're a child of God, then you have responsibilities as a member of the family. With my kids growing up, I tell them, look, your mom is not your maid. You have responsibilities in the house. As a Leavenworth, you, you, you have duties that you have to do. Now, if my kids failed to fulfill their responsibilities, I didn't disown them. They didn't, they, they weren't my, you know, I didn't say, oh, you're not my children anymore. No, they're my child right? But there's going to be some discipline because I expect them to fulfill their duties. And, and there, that, therein is the balance, right? Trusting in Christ for our salvation, but understanding that there's duties that we have to, to fulfill. Just working from a grateful heart and just humbly fulfilling our duty. 
Well, we continue now in verse 18 with this in mind, and we read, So David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life for my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? You know, Saul's come to him, he's like, hey, you know what, my daughter, you can marry her, but you know, you got to do all this work for it, even though he's already done the work. And you know, notice David's response here. Now, what was a common practice in these days was that when you took a, a, a girl to be your wife, that you would pay a dowry for this girl. And so the dowry, if you can think of it in this terms, it's, it's kind of like a security deposit. Okay, and so basically the dad's going, all right, look, I'm going to give you my daughter, but if you turn out to be a loser and, uh, you know, you you, you give her a bunch of kids and then you just sort of, you know, bail on her, well, then I'm going to take her back and your dowry is going to go towards me providing for her, you know, and for, you know, the children and and so on. Or if, you know, you die, same thing, this provides for me to provide uh, for, for my kids. And so it's, it's kind of like a security deposit. And of course, for somebody who was, you know, uh, lived in a much higher stature, somebody certainly a king's daughter, the dowry would be profoundly high. Now, it would be a mistake to read this and think that what David is saying here is, well, I can't afford it. You know, it would be a mistake, you know, the correlation would be, you know, I show you a, a Corvette or, you know, a Maserati or something, and you're like, wow, that's awesome. I can't afford it. That's not the dynamic that's going on here. What's going on here, it's a humble dynamic. Because what Saul has said to David is, here, look, you can, you can have, you know, my daughter, and David's response is a, one of humble, humbleness to say, oh, thank you very much. You know, it's not unlike our response to the Lord Jesus Christ as we're saved. Like, look, it didn't cost you anything. And so the response ought to be one of just this humble gratitude of, Lord, thank you for the work that you've done on, my, on the cross on my, my behalf. And, that, and, and it's his kindness, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. And so, so this, this is the dynamic that's going on in, in David's heart, right? And, and so you see this, this, this humility there that's demonstrated uh, by, uh, by David in, in, in this regard. He's humbly touched. And then what we see is that he's humiliated. Verse 19, but it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Mahathalite, as a wife. What? Imagine that. You're like, oh man, I'm so humbled that, I, that you would give me your daughter in marriage. Wow. And the day comes and you got your tux on and one of your buddies comes in. He's like, hey, uh, you know the, the, the girl you're supposed to marry? <laughs> she just married some other dude. You know, <laughs> you'd be like, what? Right? Can you imagine? I mean, just put yourself in, in those shoes, right? Are you going to be upset? Well, see, that's the thing here. That's Saul's second scheme. Write it down. Saul schemed to deny David what was rightfully his. He schemed to deny David what was rightfully his. Let me ask you a question. And you take a walk with this. And we're talking about how Satan schemes in your life when he denies and works in your life to have you you get something denied that was rightfully yours. Have you ever been cheated? I mean, really cheated. Have you ever had that happen to you? You know what happens in your heart? Man, I remember once, several years ago, I was cheated out of $50,000. 
truly. And, and, and some guy called me. He's like, hey, listen, you've won the lottery, and all you got to do is you got to wire in this money. And uh, <laughs> that's not how I was cheated, but I was cheated out of 50 grand. And I got to tell you, you know, what went on in my heart? Anger, bitterness, man. And I would like to tell you that I handled it in a godly way. And I didn't initially. I did not handle it in a godly way initially. Man, I was angry, man. This is an important thing for us to to take a walk with. Um, It's a huge deal for Christians today. Huge deal. Because Satan works, he schemes in your life big time in this primary area where you get denied something that is rightfully yours. And it's totally a scheme of the enemy to get you to react. See, the thing is here, as we read this, the day comes for for David, and we we read, you know, verse 19, the day comes, he's promised, he's all, whoa, and and then he gives her away to somebody else, and the Bible just moves on, doesn't say a word about David reacting adversely. And the thing is, is that, you know, there's a lot of indicators here that David didn't act adversely, that he just took it in stride. I mean, over and over again, we read leading up to this and after this, we will read how he just continues to be faithful to God. He's just a faithful man. He just continues to, to, to march right on. And the issue is in your life, if, if you've been, and I know, I just know this because the Holy Spirit's confirmed it in my heart that there are many of us here that are dealing with this issue where the enemy has schemed in our lives to deny us of something that was rightfully ours. And the issue is, how are you going to handle that? Because David handled it in a godly way. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want to expand on this just for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're talking about being wronged. We're talking about being cheated. And how are we supposed to handle it as Christians? Uh, David, it would seem, handled it in a very godly way. And it served him well. So how do we handle this? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's writing to the church that he planted in Corinth. And you talk about a church that's gone off the rails. They are a church that really has been adversely impacted by the culture in which they live. And so he says this to them, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to to judge uh, between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers and then he he says this he says now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another why do you not rather accept wrong why do you not rather let yourselves 
be cheated. Listen, here's what's going on. The dynamic in this culture, in, 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 in the, the Corinthian culture, in, or the Greek culture in general, and the Corinthian culture in particular, is that they were very much like Southern California. Very much like Southern California today. And one of the ways that they were very much like us was that they were very litigious. They, they loved them a good lawsuit. And they were quick to sue one another. One uh, ancient uh, writer mockingly wrote that every, every Corinthian was a lawyer. Right? And, and they were so into this, it was actually a form of entertainment for them. They would have a court in the middle of the, marking, the, the marketplace. So that when a court battle took place, it was a public spectacle and it would gather a crowd. There would be hundreds, sometimes thousands of people that would gather together to watch the court event transpire. You want to you say that they're like American culture, that, that they're like our Southern California culture, Judge Judy, anyone? This is, you know, who they were. They were all about, let's, let's watch this, let's get entertainment about this. If, I, if you've wronged me, I'm, I'm going to sue you kind of thing. And, and unfortunately, the church in Corinth was no different. So the culture had seeped its way into the church. Now, you want to talk about awkward. Because there you are, you're in growth group, and uh, you're like, oh, hey, has anybody got prayer requests? Oh, yeah, I got a prayer request. I, I'm in this lawsuit with this big jerk named Dave, and it's just, I, I could really use some prayer. Okay, anybody else have prayer requests? And Dave would go, oh, yeah, I got a prayer request, too, for my lawsuit. You know, you want to talk about awkward. And this is the dynamic that's going on in the church. Not a lot has changed, by the way. And keep in perspective here, we're talking about, man, what do you do in your life when the enemy schemes in your life to deny you what's rightfully yours? How do you handle it? Man, this is, the, this is right there. This is the bullseye. I mean, because we can talk biblical principle all day long until it becomes, well, wait a minute. You know, you tell me the biblical principle. Yeah, I agree with it. Yeah, I agree with it. Yeah, I agree with it. Now I'm living it. Whoa, wait a minute. Do I agree with it? What am I going to do with that? And so Paul's giving us very practical advice. And he makes three points in these verses that I've just read to you. The first point that he makes right here out the gate is that Christians ought to be able to work out their differences together. He says, look... How dare you go to the unrighteous to solve your case? And the word unrighteous that he uses there, basically it means unjust, and it has to do with justified, being justified in Christ. He's basically saying, look, you're not going to people who are justified in Christ. You're going to the unrighteous. You're going to the ungodly to have your case resolved. And that's a problem. Now, he addressed this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he basically said that, look, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit. And so, so you've got a disconnect there, and it's a very bad witness, and this is his whole point, is that, look, you're a follower of God, and then you're going to go to court, and you're going to give this huge public spectacle and witness that, you know, Christians are just as messed up as everybody else kind of thing, which we are, but we need to be able to, to give the public testimony that, listen, this is what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to live it out. I'm going to do it. This is the huge problem facing the Christian church today. There's just a ton of hypocrites. Now, everybody's hypocritical to a certain point, but we do need to give heed to what the Word says. And what the Word clearly says is if you've been wronged, you've been denied some sort of a right that you have, you've got to be very careful with how, you, with how you go about resolving it. So the first rule out the gate is, look, if you're a Christian, you got an issue with another Christian, what do you do? Well, Paul says, hey, if you need mediation, go to the church. 
and, and say, look, I need, I need some help. We'll have people who call, who understand this biblical principle. They'll call a church and say, hey, look, you know, we're, I'm a member of Reliance. I've got a problem with another member of Reliance. It's a business issue. Can you, can you mediate between us? Absolutely. We'll do that all day long. It's biblical. So we hear what's going on, and, we, and here's, here's the deal, and, here's, and that's the way it's supposed to be handled, and this is what Paul's saying. This is the way we're supposed to do it. The, 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 the second point that Paul makes is that in order for this to happen, in order for us to resolve our differences in a biblical way, our views need to be eternal. This is what he says here. If you notice there in verses 2 and 3, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? He goes on in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, what's he talking about here? Well, there's, there's several scriptures that help us that fill in the blanks here of what he's talking about. In Jude 6, it says that the fallen angels are reserved in chains until, uh, in darkness until judgment day. Then Jesus, talking in Matthew 19, said that those who follow him, followers of Christ, we're going to judge, we're going to sit in judgment with him. And, and in Revelation chapter 20, we get a picture of what this looks like. It's a picture of the, martyr, the martyred saints sitting in judgment with Christ in heaven. And, and so the idea here is this helps us to put things in perspective. It helps us to put things in perspective because if you have an eternal view on things, then the temporal view on things, when you have been wronged, it gets small in a hurry. The thing that makes the matter meter in your flesh won't even show up on the matter meter when you have an eternal perspective. Listen, you're like, oh, you know, he's wronged me. He's denied me something that I was due. And then you go, yeah, but I'm a king's kid. I have salvation in heaven. I have a mansion that's being built for me in heaven. I'm going to dwell together forever with Christ. I I can trust that all the unrighteous are going to be judged by the Lord. I don't have to judge this guy. I can turn him over to the Lord because, you know, I have have a father in heaven who tells me that, that there is a judgment day for everybody coming. When you start factoring all these things through and you you're able to, man, I'm still a king's kid, right? I'm still going to heaven, right? Well, with that eternal view, I can take the wrong of today and this temporal thing, and I can, man, I can just let it go. I can just let this thing go. And that's Paul's third point here. He says, look, to work out your differences, you've got to be ready to die to yourself. He, he, he says, why not rather accept wrong? Why not rather let yourselves be cheated? Think about that. I, I think about Paul in, in Acts 28. And here's a guy, he loves the Lord, he's serving the Lord, he's, he's going forth to, to, you know, to be God's man, and what's he getting for it? Well, it, it is not all puppy dogs and butterflies, I'll just tell you that. Paul is going through hardship, and he's being stoned, you know, they drag him out thinking he's dead in one city. He's, like, it, is, it, is, you know, it is not a rough road. A lot of people think, oh, you come to Christ, it's you know, like, like a country western song played backwards. You know, you get your truck back, and you get your car back, and you get your dog back, and you get your wife back. And, you know, no, it's not that way. Right, you you will face persecution as a Christian, but God is sovereign and He knows what He's doing. And and sometimes the way you think things work out should work out. They don't work out that way, but God is always at work. So so here's Paul, and he's out on the mission field. He's arrested. How's that for a fine? How do you do? And he's on a ship and and under arrest. And what happens is the ship gets shipwrecked and they get washed up on the island of Malta. 
And there on the island of Malta, they, you know, it's Gilligan's Island, man. They got to, they got to like make do. And they're making a fire to get warm. And Paul's out there gathering sticks and a snake, you know, just attaches itself to his arm. A viper, you know, poisonous snake. What's Paul do? Man, man, he just, he shakes it off into the fire and he keeps gathering wood. Everybody on the island is like amazed. You, you just got bit by a poisonous snake, you know? And, and people are, are just amazed by, you know, most people, they get by a snake, they're, they're dead. They fall over. You just keep pick, gathering wood. And they want to worship Paul over this. And basically, Paul's like, dude, my paraphrase, look, this, this is not me. This is God, right? And, and what happens is, and this is the point I want you to get, the guy goes through hardship. You could argue he has been wronged. What's he do? He shakes it off. And when he shakes it off, everybody sees God and they glorify God. And so for you and I today, man, when we shake things off, we show people our God. I love this saying. I I wish I could say who said it. I don't know who said it, but it says that the difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is the painful experience that you refuse to endure. Difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is the painful experience that you refuse to endure. See, God, oftentimes, He prescribes a course for us, and we, we I, you know, I'll take the pain exit. I don't want to go through what God, and so I'll do whatever compromise I have to do. My flesh wants to react when I'm denied something that I'm owed, and I want to lash out, and I want to say, you stole from me, you robbed from me, and whatever it else it is. And that's not that we don't seek justice. It's not that Christians are doormats, but it is to say that there's a right way that we're to deal with these things, and there's a wrong way to deal with these things. And what we see in Back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, man, David does this with Saul. He does it with Saul. 1 Peter 2.20 says this, How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable to God. See, and so what we, what we see here conspicuously uh, in, in the conspicuously not stated response to verse 19 is that David just shook this thing off, profoundly wronged. Man, take a walk with that. Verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, And the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. David's like, yeah, sure, right? You shall be my son-in-law today. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? Seeing I am a poor And lightly esteemed man. Just a humble response there on David's part. Verse 24, And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. And then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now, right there, let me just stop and just do a little housekeeping here. Because you might be hearing that going, what on earth is this weird stuff, okay? 
The, the issue is basically this. God had entered into a covenant relationship with the Israelites. And the symbol of that covenant was the, the cutting off, the removal of the foreskin, right? And, and the, this is a long story. The reason for that basically was that God had promised Abram that he was going to give him a son. And you know that whole story, right? And he was going to have a son with his wife, Sarai. And then, you know, God wasn't moving fast enough for them. So he's like, tells his, his wife says to him, well, why don't you sleep with my handmaid, Hagar? And, you know, we can go to son that way. And, Saul, and, and uh, Abram, being a man, said, good plan. And so they did that. And so then God shows up and he's basically, look, you, you, you're trying to do in the flesh what I said I was going to do in the spirit. So let me enter into a covenant with you. And he made the symbol, the sign of that covenant, the, the cutting of this foreskin. And really in a very real way, a very painful reminder to Abram saying, look, you're going to trust in, in the flesh, or are you going to trust in me and I'm going to, with a very delicately, if I can say it this way, the object of, you know, your, your sinfulness. Let me just give you a painful reminder right there that, that, no, I don't want you fulfilling my will in the flesh. I want to do it in the spirit. That's the whole idea of circumcision. So when you would encounter somebody who was uncircumcised, it was a symbol that they're outside of a covenant relationship with God. You might recall David when he ran into Goliath. He's like, he's an uncircumcised Philistine. And this uncircumcised Philistine is, you know, he's an enemy of God. And, and so that was the symbol of somebody outside of a relationship with God. So this is what's implied here as Saul is talking to David. <clears throat> he's uh, saying... Where am I at? What verse? Somebody help me out here. Oh, verse 25. So he's saying, look, uh, go after these ungodly people, right? And, and so he says, uh, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance, listen, on the king's enemies, okay? Uh, but Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. That's his whole motive, right? Sadly, we're going to see David do this uh, in 2 Samuel when he falls into adulterous sin with Bathsheba and is going to send Uriah. He does the exact same thing down the road when he's, you know, operating a place outside of God's will. But here we see Saul doing this, and it says, verse 26, so when the, his servants told David these words... It pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law, and now the days had not expired. What that means is that the offer that Saul had given, saying, look, if you're going to do this, you can, you can take Michael as your wife, that, play, that, that offer was still in play, okay? And that's what it means by that. So verse 27, therefore David arose, and he went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines, twice as much as Saul asked for. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full account to the king. How'd you like that job? 32, 33, 34. I mean, what a, yeah. All right, we'll leave that. Yeah, just a vivid picture. So they brought them to them in full count, right, uh, to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. All right. Here's Saul's third scheme. Okay, we've seen several schemes on Saul's, uh, on Saul's initiating. Here's his third scheme. He schemed to use David's dexterity against him. He wanted to use David's dexterity against him. I used something that started with D so it would alliterate with the other points. He's basically using David's abilities against him, right? Here's the deal. David was a naturally gifted warrior and leader, was he not? Absolutely, he was. Over and over again, we see him demonstrating brilliantly 
this natural gifting to be a warrior and a leader. But David makes it clear in every instance where he has used these abilities, he's made it very clear that it's the Lord working through him. It's not him selfishly using his own power and stuff for his own ends, right? Big important distinction. He told Saul, hey, look, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, the Lord will deliver me from the hand of Goliath, right? He, he told Goliath himself, look, the Lord doesn't save with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's. And, and over and over again, again, we see on several accounts that the Lord was with David in his victories. Why? But because David was fighting the Lord's battles, right? And, and this is so important for us to note because Saul, hey, he knows better than anyone else that when you serve your own interests, that God is not in it, okay? Think about it back in 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan, he responds, really this godly thing. You see in Jonathan, he's like, here we are. We're all, you know, mired and hunkered down. The enemy's up there. What does it matter to God, by many or by few? If God wants to bring us a victory, he can bring us a victory. Let's go see if God's in it. And he has this great victory. It's this beautiful work of faith in the Lord, right? So what happens Well, Saul then jumps on the bandwagon and he commands the troops to press the attack. For God's glory? No. So he can take vengeance on his enemies. It's completely selfish and selfishly motivated. So he says, look, everybody go, press the attack. Nobody eats a thing until we rout the enemy. Well, what happens is because he gave this rash command to suit his own vengeance and his own purposes, they weren't successful. They had a lot of problems, and they they were faint from this imposed fast that Saul had put upon them. So Saul knows better than anybody else that when when you're serving the Lord's interests, his spirit is with you, and when you selfishly serve your own interests, not so much, right? And and so what's the, the point of application for us here? Well, so often we say, bless me, Lord. Bless my plans, Lord. You know, I, I just, Lord, I, I could use a handy guy like you to have around, Lord. You'd be, you'd be pretty helpful to build, my, to build my empire. I could use a little patience every now and then. I could use, you know, some wisdom. You know what, I could, hey, give me, give me money to make my business successful, Lord. Give me, a, give me, you know, this deal coming together, God. Bless me, God. And God's like, well, I'll tell you what. I'm not about building your empire. I want to build my kingdom. See, and that's the thing that we have to keep in mind. You know, God has a plan for your life, yes. But it's not to fashion your kingdom. It's to fashion you for his kingdom. All right? And we need to keep that in mind. Isaiah said this. He said, what sorrow awaits my rebellious children, says the Lord. You make plans that are contrary to mine. You make alliances not directed by my spirit, thus piling up your sins. It's interesting, that word that he uses, alliances, in the Hebrew, it means to weave a web. That's exactly what we do when we're all about, Lord, build my empire. Lord, I could use a handy guy like you around. Lord, bless my plans. Now, that's not to say that we aren't to, you know, commit what we do to the Lord. The Bible says, you know, that we are to commit what we do to the Lord. But the attitude isn't, Lord, you come and be a handy guy to build my empire. The attitude is to say, Lord, with an open hand, I give you this prayer request. 
And I'm praying and I'm asking and I'm saying, Lord, this is what I desire to do. This is what I endeavor to do. Lord, we want to buy this house. And if it would be your will, we're going to hold it here in this open hand. But Lord, we belong to you and our life belongs to you. And we know that what, you, what is your will, you'll provide. And what isn't your will, you won't provide. And so we need to understand that the enemy, if he gets the opportunity in your life, he'll try to use your strengths against you. If he can have you working to achieve your own ends and your own purposes, man, he will do that all day long. And you've got to just take a walk with the question, what is it that you're building? What are you building? Are you building God's kingdom or are you trying to build your empire? Fourth point, make it quickly and we'll be done. It's that Saul schemed to... to Saul schemed to determinedly seek opportunities to kill David. Saul schemed to determinedly seek opportunities to kill David. Look at verse 28. It says, Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Translation, my schemes haven't worked. Saul saw, he's like, oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. Verse 29, and Saul gave up. No, it's not what it says, is it? Verse 29 says, and Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continuously. The idea is 24-7. He pressed this attack and we finished the chapter with verse 30 that says, then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. Listen, this fourth and final point is that the enemy is determined to take you out. And his schemes might have failed yesterday and his schemes might have failed today, but he's going to continue pressing it. And think about Jesus' experience in the wilderness in Luke's gospel. He's tempted in the wilderness and Satan leaves him. Why? It says, for an opportune time. He's not done. And that's the way it is in your life. So you have to understand, you can't get up on your high horse and go, oh, great, I repelled that scheme and I repelled that scheme. I got it made. I got this thing licked. Satan can't, because Satan will find a way. He's crafty. He knows you. He's a student of you. So he'll be like, oh, let's try this. Oh, let's try that. If this didn't work, we'll try this. And he's going to find a way in. And so what it is for you, you've got to stay on guard. Peter said this, 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We've got to be careful. We've got to understand that we've got to be on our guard. Three questions as we close. I have you write them down, take a walk with them this week. First question Are you trusting in your works or are you trusting in Jesus' work? We're talking about salvation. Are you trusting in your own work or are you trusting in Jesus' work? And I'll give you an opportunity as we're closing in prayer. Maybe for some of you, if you've been trusting in your own work, you need to trust in the Lord. I'll give you an opportunity to pray and to settle that once and for all today. Second question, write it down. Is there a past wrong that you need to shake off? Is there a past wrong that you need to shake off? Third and final question, here it is. What are you dangerously good at? Let's just leave those questions up for a little while. What are you dangerously good at? The idea is, look, the enemy would love to get you to trust in your own power and your own, your own abilities and your own skills rather than trusting in the Lord. What are you dangerously good at? 